You're listening to episode 57 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. I'm Simon Jones, Digital Marketing Manager here at the Centre, and I'm joined by Communications Manager Steph McKenna. It's Saturday the 10th of August 2019, and today we've launched the second International Literature Showcase of the Year in Edinburgh at the National Library of Scotland. Val McDermott is the curator of this showcase and has selected 10 of the most compelling LGBTQI writers working in the UK today. Some you might have heard of, some are likely to be new discoveries, but they're all exciting and worthy of your bookshelves. Earlier today, Val's selection was revealed, and on the podcast now, we have an in-depth discussion about the showcase between Val and The Guardian Books Online editor, Sean Kane. You can find out more about the International Literature Showcase, which we run in partnership with the British Council, by heading to the website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash ILS. There you'll also find Elif Shafak's list of 10 exciting women writers from the showcase earlier this year. So let's hand over to Sean Kane talking with Val McDermott. And maybe I should start with the caveat that I'm Australian, so I am the sort of observer of what you might call the British canon or an outsider to the publishing industry here. But I was kind of amazed to read about your story and the fact that your crime novel was the first British crime novel with a lesbian detective, and that was in 87, and that's not that long ago. Well, no, it's certainly within my lifetime. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, it never occurred to me that Lindsay Gordon wouldn't be a lesbian, I suppose because uh, at that point uh, some of the American uh, new wave feminist writers had been writing with lesbian protagonists, writers like Barbara Wilson and Mary Wings, and so the door had been pushed open a crack for me, I suppose, in 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 terms of uh, the possibility. Uh, and I didn't I didn't think about not writing a lesbian character. And one of the reasons it felt important to me was that when I was growing up, there were no lesbian templates. So for me, it was a real struggle to to understand the possibilities of my sexuality and then to to come to grips with them. Because there was no books, there was no films, there was no TV, there were no lesbian sports stars, there were no lesbian pop stars, uh, it, it felt very isolating and very isolated. So one of the things that lay behind the creation of Lindsay Gordon was the idea that, that there would be something that people could turn to and see a reflection of a possible life, I suppose. Um, you know, Lindsay could be your yourself on a good day, or, or indeed a bad day, um, or she could be your fantasy girlfriend or your fantasy best friend. But there was the idea that there was something out there that, that, that would make you feel you weren't the only person in the universe that felt like this. And it's interesting you use that word template, because, of course, then you're part of establishing something afterwards, whether you're aware of it or not at the time, you're sort of setting a precedent for all the writers that will come after you. And that's sort of why I was so pleased when I saw the 10 writers that you chose for the showcase, that they're all relatively young, relatively new. You know, I think it's it's easy sometimes, I think, that we, we look at, you know, the Alan Hollinghursts of the world and the Sarah Waters of the world, and we think that perhaps the gay voice and the bisexual voice and trans voices are perhaps more established than they are. I think what's exciting is that that this is not a, a, a battle or a, or a stance we took once. It's important that people see a continuity going forward, that there are continuing to be new LGBTQI voices out there uh, taking taking it forward, talking about what it's like right now 
to live in that place in the world. Um, not necessarily books that are specifically about being gay or trans or lesbian, but that have those characters within the landscape of the world they're writing about. And what excited me particularly about this list was the the range of subject material, the range of styles. You know, we have poets, we have playwrights, we have short story writers, we have novelists. And the exciting thing is that all those voices are finding a space in the, the literary world today. It's not um, it's not like it was when I was starting out, where every le- lesbian piece of work was a struggle to get published. I mean, initially I was published uh, by the Women's Press because there was no mainstream publishing house that was interested in publishing a lesbian novel. I remember uh, some years ago, and it must have been in the 90s, uh, I was working with a television production company trying to develop some of my work for television. Um, uh, one of the things they suggested was to do a series with Lindsay Gordon, and, and they contacted the head of drama at a major broadcaster who sent a letter back saying, I can't believe you would be so stupid as to suggest that we would want to do a lesbian drama. So, you know, there's, there's been every, every generation has its battles. Um, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's easy now for LGBTQI writers to find a space in the published world. But the door is, is open wider than it was 30 odd years ago when I started. And so then observing as over those 30 years, what are the things you think have changed most then in terms of the literary sphere of, of, of the sort of LGBTQ voice? Obviously, the big publishers are on board these days. Yeah, I think that's been the principal change is that the, the access to, to the marketplace, if you like, access to the audience. Uh, it's difficult to, to really make progress when you're, you're being published by uh, small publishers who don't have much of a voice. What's also, I think, really powerful is the, st- the increasing strength of independent booksellers. There was a time when it looked as if independent booksellers were all going to go under, but there's been a resurgence uh, of their position and I think uh, independent booksellers are much more willing, uh, much more inclined to look at things that are not just the, the bestseller list churned out by the, the big commercial publishers, uh, because they know their readers and they have the, the power to, if you like, to hand sell to people on the basis of, look, I know you like this book, you're going to like this one. And that's one of the ways that uh, any kind of uh, niche publishing, niche writing gets into people's hands and moves from being a niche that's read by a handful of people to something that has a much wider readership. Yeah, it's interesting that because I, I used to work in a bookshop. I used to work in Blackwell's in Oxford and I was on staff there and they asked whether I would put together an LGBTQ section for the fiction level. And... It was a really interesting question because it was this idea of were we going to be separating them from a wider body of literature and therefore somehow ghettoizing them? Or were we sort of making a statement as a shop that we recognise the importance of this particular uh, sort of voice amongst all the others and that we we're providing a safe area where people knew they could come and find those books easily and browse without being bothered? I think the answer is that you do both. Um, you know, I, I do sometimes say to booksellers here up in Scotland, you should have me in three sections. You should have me in the LGBT <laughs> section, you should have me in the crime section, and you should have me in the Scottish literature <laughs> section. So I think that's the way to go, to cover all the bases, uh, uh, not just to sort of ghettoise writers. I think it's good to have 
an area where people who specifically want to read books with a, with, with a particular direction for whatever reason, because that's where they find themselves, because they're questioning their own possibilities and they, they want to have a, a sense of, of the world on the other side of the fence, if you like, from the one they're on. Um, but also, I think it's, it's important to have those books in the general stock so that the, the browsing reader picks up a book and goes, oh, that looks interesting, that they might not have gone to look for in the LGBT section. And of course, there's so many books that have uh, a gay voice or uh, queer subplots or all these sorts of things where it's not necessarily the driving force of the book. It's it's can be woven in. And we see this in some of these books that you've chosen, some of these authors you've chosen, uh, quite incidental, but very important as well. Yeah, and I think that indicates a certain coming of age that uh, it, it, that it now becomes just part of the landscape. That was what I was always trying to do from the beginning, and I, I suspect that that's why the Lindsay Gordon books are still in print all these years later. Uh, these books have never been out of print because they're not issue-based. They're not based around the idea of the struggle to come out. I wanted to, to write books that had the lesbian characters as just part of the cast of characters, that their lesbianism was an important part of who they were, it's an important part of their history, of how they came to be in the place that they're in, but it wasn't the only thing that defined them. Well, let's talk about some of them. And I kind of want to start with one of my favourites, uh, Andrew McMillan. You know, when I, when I think back to the sort of coded messages that poets like Tom Gunn and W.H. Auden had to pass on because they were forced by the conventions of their time into, I suppose, lines we all learn to read between, and, and so in, in those terms, Andrew McMillan's poetry is all the more astonishing. In his latest collection, Playtime, uh, there's such tender insight into the process of, of growing into himself. There's no shame, no sense of looking over his shoulder to see if he's going to get into trouble for writing so openly. And, and I think that's, that's a great indicator of, of where we've come. Yes, it's that complete absence of shame and that the joy and the cheekiness that I see in his poetry that just makes me, yeah. I, I love I love how he writes. And it's so amazing when you go, when you see him do readings and he'll be in a space that's not necessarily a gay male audience and just the romance he can inspire in people regardless of their sexuality just because of the the longing and the romance in the ordinary lives that he shows in his in his poetry is actually it's really amazing I was so taken aback um he read urination uh from his collection physical um when he won the first the Guardian Fest book award and there's just this sort of collective ah oh, when he finished reading it in the room because it is just such a he's so uh he's just such a powerful poetic voice and I think the beauty of, of this tender and fierce poetry about men loving each other is that it's written in the same terms that a heterosexual poet would have at their disposal. There's no sense of this is there are things I can't say because I'm gay. It's, it's, there's that same uh, openness and, and, as you say, cheekiness. I just want to quote a little bit from, from one yes, of the please, poems, yeah. if I may. Um, this is a poem called Anaphora Penises, uh, and it's from his new collection, Playtime. Um, and it goes, I disagree with you on this one small point. The time you said of penises, when you've seen one, you've seen them all, I think. You're wrong. 
Each one is fingerprint unique, each with its own way of being in the world, shy or all bravado or statesmanlike. It's not size, though you can feel each one trying to push itself upright like a schoolboy hoping to be called on to give an answer. It's smaller things, the smell of each one, the way the day can linger there beneath the slim lips of the foreskin, each with its own direction, each with its own personality, and so on. And I, and I just think that's <laughs> it's, it's delightful. Um, it's so good. And it's it is, but it's and it's the way that uh, that that men have written about women, and, and and indeed women have written about women over the years. And it's without shame, and it and it's it is what it is, exactly what it is. And so maybe let's talk about someone that could perhaps be posited as a as an opposite, but um, Luke Turner out of the woods. Mm. His and so this is a memoir, and it's looking at his youthful encounters with uh, men in men and strangers in London's Epping Forest, and you do get the sense that he's 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 quite troubled by his sexuality. Yeah, I mean, he's at the beginning of the the book. He's he's come out of a, a five year relationship with his girlfriend, and and he's very clearly feeling cast adrift it's he's, he's lost his home he's he's lost the relationship that was the center of his life even though he knew it had issues he didn't want it to end the way it did and and he turns to epping forest as somewhere he's known since childhood as as a way to almost explore what's ailing him and the forest and his environs I, I think it felt like almost an extended metaphor for his sense of loss and his need to explore the side of himself that had failed to find full expression in the past. And his, his sexual encounters in the forest, this, this casual sex uh, in the forest and elsewhere, feel like encounters with himself as much as with the strange men he fucks there. Uh, it's as if they give him the possibility of giving into his own sense of, of loving risk. And yet, the other, on the other side of the coin he never quite rejects his Methodist past and upbringing. He still enjoys churches and, and hymns and, and the grace he sees in his parents. Well, that's it. And the, the interesting thing is that, but personally with this book coming out, it, it's his first book. And it's been amazing in terms of the timing. In the, a lot of men in my life have begun conversations about recognizing that perhaps their sexuality is a little bit more fluid than just purely heterosexual. Um, and I've given Luke's book to all of these men because I think it's a really, it's really captured a, a, a perfect moment really where we're having quite open conversations about the possibilities of gender and sex and sexuality and um he's sort of laid it all out in a way that must feel really like self-flagellating and vulnerable but uh, I think it's it's a really necessary book even just about purely masculinity yeah but I think you should give them the Andrew McMillan as well to counter it with some joy <laughs> yeah um, exactly <laughs> you know, it's, and it's not it's not just sexuality that drives this memoir it's the relationship between history and, and the present between the grotty side of urban life and the weirdly uneasy atmosphere of the forest it's, it's really not an idyll um mm. and i and i i think it's i think it's very brave of him to make himself so vulnerable mm. uh, as because he's he's not trying to pretend that you know he's he's not as lost in his life as, as he was at the time that he was writing this yes 
And that's a difficult thing to show. It's difficult for a writer because once you've put it out there, you've put it out there. And, uh, yes, you can't and take it back. Knows. <laughs> you can't. And, every, and, and, you know, at least with fiction, you can pretend it's not you. Um, but when it's, it's uh, admittedly a memoir, then there is no hiding place. So, you know, props to him for, for having the courage to go down that road. Well, should we perhaps talk about one of the the women that you've, you've you've chosen how about mary paulson ellis i actually hadn't heard of her until you uh put her on your list Val. yeah well her first novel um the other mrs walker was waterstone's scottish book of the year uh and i think it's an, an extraordinary uh novel it's, it's a very distinct and unique voice she calls the book the murderous side of family life the dark the quirky and the strange and it's all of those things uh, and yeah. it's 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 a really beautifully constructed book uh, and the characters are fascinating and it just draws you in uh, and you're always being wrong-footed by the, yeah. the way the story goes um, and her second novel which is out in September the inheritance of Solomon Farthing is um, again, it's it's this complex structure that moves back and forth in time, uh, and it deals with a web of relationships that that span the century from the First World War onwards. It's the interweaving of of men's lives across three generations, the complex connections as lovers and friends, from boyhood to decrepitude, and it's it's the story is anchored by the the eponymous hero Solomon Farthing, who is an, an air hunter. That's that's air, as in who inherits the estate rather than looking for somewhere to breathe. Although you'd have to say there are points in the book where you know it does feel claustrophobic, and you do want to take a very deep breath. I'm rather jealous that you've got to read that. I haven't actually read the second book yet. I'm, I was delighted uh, to get an early copy. It's out in September, oh, and I think it's it's a it's a it's a satisfyingly fat book, but it never feels like it's over long. You know, it takes. <laughs> I, I I raced through it because I I loved I loved the weaving of those relationships and, and, and how you, you over over the period of the book you understand more about these lives and there are there are surprises and shocks along the way. And of course it's it's ultimately it's about inheritance, both both literal and metaphorical. Um and people care about inheritance even mm. when the estates in question seem pitifully small. But as I say, the loves and loyalties that, that permeate the book are anything but small. I, I think it's an absolute stonker of a novel. And I think what's, what's a common feature between these two books is actually something that a lot of people who uh, fall into the broad sense of LGBTQ, what they feel about their lives at some time or another, the sense of being square pegs in round holes. Mm, and I think a exactly. lot of us have felt like that at one time or another. And and also that just that I mean, talking about the other Mrs. Walker, where it sounds quite actually quite similar to the second novel in that she's talking about uh, you know, mixed up identities and you have the sort of the question the mysteries around these three women in this family. Yeah. And it's very very much you can see that she's a writer that's fascinated by family secrets and you can see how that would appeal um perhaps someone that has got that background themselves with lgbtq that that sense of a private life and a family life and how those things mix and she's got she's also got i think a, a really uh, fantastic writing style 
and you can see a kind of line of, of continuation through writers like Sarah Waters and Ali Smith and Jeanette Winterson, two writers who are writing really, I, I think, um, the kind of prose that makes you almost step back and take a breath. I just just read a little bit from the very beginning of Solomon Farthing. In the end, there was one, but there should have been two dead men laid out amongst the walnut shells, skin already blue. A great rose bloomed over the dead man's heart, there on his second best shirt, bright amongst the decay. Those who were left looked away, thinking of the one who should have been there, but was not, lungs like wings of ice holding him to the bottom of a river where none of them would have to follow now. I mean, it's, it's lyrical, it's elliptical, mm. it asks questions, and, and doesn't it make you just desperate to read on? Yeah, yeah, it's, like, it's almost like the Mrs. Walker also starts with a, sort of someone dying on their own in a house. Yeah. So, I was just thinking that, I was like, oh, <laughs> back, to, back to corpses in a room. But it, it's, it, it's always that fantastic launching pad. It, it reads, it's like a mystery. Yeah, but all great fiction is a mystery. All great fiction mm, reveals yeah. itself as you, as you read. I just love the wee details there that just ping out at you. You know, the second best shirt, um, mm. lungs like wings of ice, and and I, I I I think the whole book is a treat, frankly. And that's and that's that's kind of why when I read the other Mrs. Walker, I did think of Sarah Waters because it wasn't necessarily you know the historical setting or um, just the the constant little twists and turns and things. It was that 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 compulsion. I think that I felt to keep reading. I, I feel that with with Sarah Waters as well in a very big way. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things also that uh, that Mary Paul Stanley illustrates as a writer is that you don't have to be writing about gay characters or, or gay issues mm. to bring a different mm. sensibility to the work. I think most LGBTQ writers have felt that outsiderness probably from quite an early age, a sense of difference, but not always understanding where in that difference lay. And that gives you precisely the detachment, I think, that you need to be a good writer, to, to, to look at the world, to understand it emotionally, but also to be able to, to read it in a way that someone on the outside looking in sees things. And that, that's interesting, that sort of, um, I guess, calling it back to yourself, that you wrote this when you started writing you know you knew that you were establishing a template and that you were writing a, a lesbian detective where there weren't any lesbian detectives in in British crime writing that we are now at a stage where we have young queer gay bisexual trans writers that feel like they don't necessarily need to write about those things absolutely it's become a, a part of the landscape of of, of literary world uh, you don't have to write terrible angst-ridden books about coming out anymore, um, and 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 the lesbian doesn't have to die, you know. Well, let's talk maybe uh, about Fiona Mosley because she's another interesting young writer. Yes. Uh, can you tell me sort of what what it was about her and what was it about Elmet that made you wanted to put on the list? Um, I th I think it's it's an intense explanation of what it means to be different. And some of that difference is is about gender and about the expression of gender, but a lot of it is um, about just being different in in the world. Um, we discovered the the truths of of one family's life within a, a sort of meditation, I suppose, on the, the Yorkshire landscape where it unfolds. It's it's lyrical, it's ethereal, and it's it's also brutal. And it's a small, close family unit that's removed themselves from the from the world almost. Um, and yet there's space within that for some kind of difference. It's a world of, 
isolation, simmering violence going on all the time. But it's also a world that can encompass Daniel, who is more like his mother than his rage-filled father. And, and Daniel likes to make things nice. Uh, and that's something that's, that's commented on quite neutrally by his father. It's not, a, it's not done as an, an insult or, or a, a, even something that seems strange to him. He simply mentions it in passing. You like to make things nice. Um, and so this is a world that, where you'd think that kind of, of uh, gender fluidity would cause ructions, but in fact, within the family, it doesn't. So it's, I suppose it reminds us that, that queer encompasses a world of difference as well as similarities. It's, it's, it's an amazing book. It's, 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 like, it's like Badlands and Beauty. You know, it's a cross between mother, Mothering Heights and Hansel and Gretel. I mean, the original Brothers Grimm version, not some Hollywood Disney version. Yeah, no, Hansel and Gretel is a very good comparison. Um, and that's an interesting thing, that the, the dynamic between Daniel and his father, because his father is so masculine. And Daniel, in so many ways, is very feminine. But there's never that clash there. Yeah. He, you know, his father loves him and his son is very, uh, he's not feminine he, you know, in an internalized way. He's like, you know, he wears crop tops and his hair is long and uh, he behaves in ways that perhaps could be classified as feminine. Um, but his father loves him. And that's such a wonderful, tender heart at the, aside from all this violence in this novel. Yeah, it's a, the, the book. Is, it's a kind of lyrical gothic, I suppose, mm. lyrical, lyrical gothic thriller almost. Um, and but it also hints at some different kind of life for Daniel, who who says himself at one point, "You have to appreciate that I never thought of myself as a man," mm. and that's a very interesting statement in the context yeah. of masculinity within the book. But Fiona said that she feels like she could never write a novel which didn't have queer characters at its heart. Um, which is a really interesting statement to make as a first-time novelist that, you know, makes you really wonder, okay, well, what are we going to see from you over the next, you know, decade, next two decades? Yeah, and and it's clear that, um, you know, queer characters are becoming quite central uh, in in what you might call mainstream literary fiction. And I was a a Booker Prize judge last year, and, and we shortlisted a novel by Daisy Johnson called Everything Under, and at the heart of that is, is a queer character. And I have to say it didn't turn a hair in the judging room. It was just discussed as in, purely in its own terms amongst the other books. So I think it's, it's really heartening that, that, that this is happening, that there is this change. And clearly there's, there's always a long way to go. You only have to look at social media to see the levels of homophobia, misogyny, transphobia that is still out there by scared people hiding behind uh, fake names to understand that there's still a substantial tranche of the population who have a long way to come. But we are moving. We are moving forward with every generation. And maybe let's talk about Kirsty Logan then, because she also won she won the Polari First Book Prize um, for The Rental Heart. Yeah. What was it, what was it about Kirsty that made you want to put her on? Because I think she's fascinating, um, particularly for The Grace Keepers, which was um, this sort of watery dystopia. Um, and I have a particular fondness for sort of environmental dystopia. Or The Gloaming as well, which uh, she's called A Queer Mermaid Love Story. And when I hadn't read The Gloaming, and then I saw that and I went, oh, God, I have to read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a great a great quote from the beginning of The, the Gloaming that's always that stuck with me. The sea always wants things to change. The land wants to say the same. And that's kind of the pull 
that we find in ourselves, I think. And that's, and that's actually a tension that I think Kirsty explores in her short stories and her novels. I, I chose Kirsty because I think her work is really intriguing. Uh, it, it asks questions of, our, of, of, our, of us as a society, but it also uses these ideas of sort of myth and strangeness. Um, she gives us the fear of loss that comes with change, but also set against that, the eagerness to embrace what might be a possibility. And there are some very strange possibilities in her writing. <laughs> she, has a, she has a fantastical imagination that, that embraces mermaids and human statues. It's, it's rooted, in, I think, in the impossibility of pinning things down to the prosaic. Mm, uh, and and I, love that, yeah. I love that sense of just taking off and your imagination can go anywhere. Uh, her latest collection, Things We Say in the Dark, which I've been lucky enough again to, to see an advanced copy of, is fabulous in the literal sense. It's got feminist fairy tales that are laced with horrors that leap out of the dark and, and, and leave a sooty handprint on your soul. Um, and the stories are interspersed with what at first sight might be autobiographical notes from the author's domestic life with her wife. But that's as much a fable as everything else, it turns out, or, or is it? We're left with all these questions at the end of where the bit that seemed to be rooted in absolute everyday reality isn't, clearly. And I think it's that there's an exciting sense of always being wrong-footed by the possibilities here. And that, I think that's really interesting that we're seeing at the moment that we can perhaps link with Fiona Mosley and Daisy Johnson, Kirsty Logan, uh, Julia Armfield, who's got a short story collection called Salt Slow, Mm-hmm. This sort of use of fantasy and a sort of Angela Carter blend of horror and play. Yeah. And these characters that don't fit categories all woven in. It's, it's a really exciting sort of uh, pocket of writers at the moment that are uh, young writers that are weaving in this this sort of Angela Carter vibe into their fiction. You've just made Salt Slow move three places up my to be, the to-be-read pile oh, on my good. table. <laughs> so I was sitting there amongst the pile, I thought, mm, that sounds really, really interesting. Um, so <laughs> good. I, I, and I think this, I like I like this um, the strand that challenges our sense of the, of, of the prosaic, the everyday. Um, I think we all need to have a bit of fantasy and a bit of magic in our mm. lives. And this also feels quite unforced. It doesn't mm. feel like here I am. I'm going to tell you something fantastical. It's there's a matter of factness to the way Kirsty narrates her stories that you feel well. Of course, yes, absolutely. Of course, you've, of course, course you've a mermaid. A mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I come from I come from Fife up in Scotland, and we actually believe in mermaids. So you know, I was going to say you're really me, used you know, to them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, on that topic, uh, Rosie Garland, the similar taste for magic and uh, fantastical. Yeah, and and Rosie's Rosie's work has, as I suppose, I always think of it as having a sort of glitter. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it's almost a fairground light to it. It's 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 got that big boldness of of, of the way that she addresses the fantastical. I suppose uh, she she won the inaugural Ms. Lexia novel competition with her first novel. Uh, the Palace of Curiosities. Sarah Waters described it as a jewel box of a novel. It's set in 1850s London, so Sarah Waters would know uh, what she's talking about. <laughs> um, and her latest novel, The Night Brother, is, is it's bold and it's dazzling. 
it's a tale of hermaphrodite doubleness in Fantasy Eccle Manchester, which is not necessarily the venue you would think of when you immediately think Fantasy Eccle. You think, you know, Paris and the Impressionists and, and uh, the Moulin Rouge, but uh, this one's set in Manchester and it really, really works. Um, it's, 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 it's magical realism, I suppose, in style and substance, but she uses the strangeness of that fantastical world to to examine and, and, and explore notions of, of belonging and identity, gender and sexuality. And those those big questions that, you know, we all go through at one time or another, how we define ourselves, how we define our place in the world. Uh, she, she does all this in, in uh, a really rich and, and full sort of style of writing. Like Stella Duffy said that Rosie Garland writes in a tumble of poetry, desire and passion. And, and that's, that's right, it's all there on, on the page. It's, and you can hide all sorts of serious engagement beneath the sparkle in the dark. That's a lovely phrase, yeah. It's that um, she's like another writer, I think, that's really, she's interested in that idea of the misfit and what can exist outside of what society calls normal. Um, and that you can flourish when you find what you might call your people. Yeah. And there's a real energy, I think, to her writing, a, a sort of engine that sort of swirls through the pages and sweeps you along. We, As readers, we need to know where this book is going and, and how it's going to get there and how she's going to, to make all these pieces come together into a, an extraordinary whole. And and she does it. But let's, let's talk about poetry then. Um Keith Jarrett. I mean, I had never heard of Keith Jarrett, and I actually found it quite hard to get his collection seller. Um, how did you hear about him? He's amazing. I hadn't heard about Keith Jarrett before I started working on, on compiling this list, but uh, a friend recommended his work to me and said I should really be looking at this if I wanted to have a, a sense of, of an extraordinary poet working in this field. And so I went off and, and, and I read the book, and I was indeed blown away. He's he's a poet. He's he's a fiction writer. He's a playwright. Uh, he's currently completing a novel exploring the migration of religion from the Caribbean to London. Uh, he's had plays on the Old Vic and BBC Four, and he's a poetry slam champion. So I don't I don't know why would <laughs> he's not a name on everyone's lips. Yeah. Um, he's his his writing is about finding himself, I suppose, in the contradictions and oppositions of of his world. He grew up very much in a biblical tradition and, and that gave him, I think, the great rolling music of words and stories. And then on the other hand, he had the South London youth culture with, with DJs and its different jazz of hip hop and heavy bass. And I think that the Caribbean of his roots and, and the outer inner city of zones four, five and six have this sort of collision that he's trying to to find, uh, I suppose, a, a way to meld them together. and. It seems to me that there's a, there's a lot in his his collection Sela, which I highly recommend about what it is to be a man and what it feels like to be him. A foot in both camps, which which many of us have at one time or another. A foot in both camps can can make it feel like we belong in neither. But he seems to be entirely focused on in making a kind of new synthesis. That's that's the thing. It's that he, he's writing about. Caribbean identity, about London identity, about being gay man of colour, about the masculinity, about all of these things that perhaps you would feel would leave a person overwhelmed or would leave them unsure about themselves. But there's just this thread of confidence and this um, thread of subversiveness in all of his writing that 
kind of leaves you feeling that he's completely in charge. Yeah. Even the acknowledgements in, in his book of poetry <laughs> yeah. are, in, are, in, are in verse. And, and it's, it's wonderful. If I just read a bit from that, the acknowledgements for Sela. We who have survived, we who have queered, fagged and poofed our way through the school system, we, the survivors of oppressive institutions and of the sticklers and stone hearts that run them, we who have survived, we with glitter-proof ribs that once caved under the shadows of our parents' disapproval, we with pockets made of hand-me-down wounds, we of purse lips and handbag humour and zone four, five and six commutes, we who once knew these streets by their bus shelters, who still know these streets by their old names, racism road, homophobia grove, bigot hill, we who know history's desire to repeat, who know progress is neither linear nor neat, we who do not take for granted. And, and so it goes, and it finishes off, we who never take for granted, we who stand in love and in fury and in power. And that's the kind of flavour of, of, of the sort of the rolling cadences of, of his, his verse, and I, and I just think it's fabulous. There's that sense of defiance there, which is just so, um, makes you want to applaud. Yeah, I can see why he, he would, might be a poetry slam champion because there's a real force. Uh, 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 it's like a wave when you get yeah. verse like that. It comes at you like a wave that just keeps rolling uh, and, and it's beautiful. Well, I'd recommend if people listening are after Sella, I mean, you can order it, of course, but um, if you're also wanting to just get a sense of his work, there are clips of him on YouTube uh, at slam events um, and he's yeah incredibly charismatic. So it is... It is uh, it's something that you can access easily if you go looking. On poetry, Colette Bryce. Yeah, a very, very contrasting uh, poetic yes. voice, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, I think, extraordinarily powerful. Uh, Colette grew up in Northern Ireland, and her poetry is, is deeply rooted in, in that place and its culture and its politics. Uh, she's one of these writers whose language seems quite simple, but actually, what's going on there is, is a profound engagement with identity. She's, she's won so many awards over her career. It's, 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 if I started going into them now, it would take the rest of the podcast. <laughs> uh, she's a remarkable poet. But I think um, there is also, as well as the, 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 the politics and, and the history element, there's a strong autobiographical element in her work. Uh, although she writes about Northern Ireland, she writes about Northern Ireland a lot, uh, and she says of Northern Ireland, uh, that say nothing is still a powerful rule there. But she clearly believes in saying something, all sorts of somethings, in fact. Uh, and as well as the politics, she refuses to say silent about. She also reaches for, for emotional truths. Um, there's a bit of a crossover in, in a, a, a poem of hers called The Full Indian Rope Trick. And it ends up, uh, I'm long gone, my one-off trick, unique, unequaled since. But what would I tell them, given the chance? It was painful. It took years. I'm my own witness, guardian of the fact that I'm still here. Uh, and on the other side of that, there's, there's an openness in, in, in a poem like Car Wash. Car Wash is my favourite. It's great, isn't it? She's talking about uh, her, her and her then-girlfriend who are both learning to drive around at the same time, taking the car to the car wash. Um, and then there's this, this little bit in the middle. And when spinning blue brushes of implausible dimensions are approaching the vehicle from all directions, what can we do but engage in a kiss in a world where to do so can still stop the traffic? That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that, that, that for me also, the, there's an understanding that 
to be that honest in poetry, whether it's about politics of Northern Ireland or about love, it comes at a price. Um, she's got a poem called Spider, where she writes about trapping a spider under a fine-blown wine glass. I meant to let him go, but still he taps against the glass, all Marcel Marceau, in the wall that is there, but not there, a circumstance I know. And I just, I, her, her, her words, I think, are extraordinary. Um, she's someone who rewards careful reading and rereading mm. because there's a real depth and texture to the way she, she uses language and the way that she writes about the world that's, that's not always obvious on the first pass. But I think she's a fantastic writer. It's that ability to sort of pinpoint a small moment in like an everyday life, like capturing a spider or going to the car wash or she has that fabulous poem about going to the dentist mm. um that it's it, she can use those and relate it to a sort of wider truth in a way that reminds me of poets like Helen Dunmore yeah Caroline Duffy in a way um that there's this real um sort of sensuousness that she can sort of turn on with a click and then suddenly this very small moment means so much more and you think, Oh God, how did she how did she find meaning in that? But she she always does. Yeah, she she lives I mean you'd have to say she lives the life examined. And it reminds us that we should pause too in our daily activities and just think about what's happening around us, not just uh blindly go through the day one thing to the other, but look for those moments of, of insight and moments of truth in our, our everyday lives as we move forward. Uh, and I think there's a real uh, reflective power in that, that. That it certainly reading Colette Bryce always makes me make my cup of coffee thoughtfully and mindfully, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. Um, but but just to think about the the everyday uh, in in a way that's beyond everyday. Well, let's talk about our last two, or from your ten, and this is part of something I think is really hugely exciting is this idea that we are starting to see a British transgender canon. Yeah. And the two writers that you had on your, your uh, list of 10, uh, Juliet Jacques and Juno Dawson, I think that perhaps Dawson in particular people will be quite familiar with because Juno writes uh, quite a lot of journalism um, and writes books for both young people and for adults. Um, so she has quite a big audience. But I was really pleased she was there. Yeah, it's extraordinarily prolific. Uh, something like 17 books in seven years yes. makes me feel like a slacker. <laughs> <laughs> and such wide sort of, uh, you know, trying to appeal to young people, writing fiction, then she's writing guides about uh, being a transgender woman in the world. It's kind of amazing just how many different focuses she can have. Yeah, she started started her professional life. She was a teacher, uh, and and then moved into journalism. And I suppose that when you work in close contact with with young people, you understand the the paucity of what's available to them in terms of helping them to understand their lives. And uh, that's clearly been a big driver uh, for her. And you know, she very publicly announced her transition uh, about four or five years ago. Uh, and she's not shied away from confronting the realities of that and, and she's a school role model for Stonewall uh, and she works a lot with in schools with with young people as well as writing the books I don't quite know where she has the time unless she has a clone <laughs> somewhere because uh, it, is, it is extraordinary and 
I think her her work is never coy uh, about about queer and all its rainbow colours. You know, she's frank about difficult subjects, and I think for adolescents struggling with their identity, it's so affirming to read work like this that includes people of every part of the rainbow spectrum, no matter what it is that's bothering you in terms of gender and, and sexuality, I imagine, as an adolescent, you will find something in, in Juno's books that will, will give you, will ease your sense of isolation, will ease your sense of loneliness, and also open up possibilities for a future life. And the other thing that's really key, I think, about the way she writes about these things, it's never the only aspect that defines a character. These, yeah, the, the, the people she writes about are not simply there as a cipher for the trans character or the queer character or the bisexual character. It's just a part of who they are. And that also is really affirming for, for young people. Um, there's, a, there's a real, I don't know, there's a real brio in, in, in her writing. Mm. And I think it's, there's, there's honesty there, there's compassion there. And it's never sentimental. You know, no. and she never talks down to a reader. She never strives to be the cool adult in the room. You know, I think it's, it's a real gift to be able to to achieve that. In in so much of her fiction, particularly when she's sort of writing about young women characters, they're often really precocious and really annoying in a lot of ways, and uh, but so recognisable, um, and overwhelmingly cisgender as well. Like, they're not always uh, sort of transgender characters at the forefront of her fiction. Really nice, I think, as a young woman myself, to uh, look at what young people are reading now in terms of young adult fiction and uh, just seeing all of those anxieties anticipated by other writers that you get the sense that a lot of young adult writers writing right now have a real affection for young people, and you get that with Juno Dawson, I think. Yeah, and and I think as well, there's there is that sense that I was saying there that there's nothing coy about it. There's you know, in in her non-fiction book, this book is gay. She just sets out her stall really clearly. Sometimes men fancy men. Sometimes women fancy women. Sometimes women fancy men and women. Sometimes men fancy women and men. Sometimes people don't fancy anyone. Sometimes a man might want to be a woman. Sometimes a woman might want to be a man. It's nothing coy there. That's this. This is how it is. And and you know, whenever you fit on that, that that's fine. Uh, yes. And and I think when you're a teenager, these are the things you need to hear. I mean, nobody said anything like that to me when I was was growing up. I I, you know, I I didn't really know what lesbians were. I'd I'd, I'd heard these rumors about about these things called lesbians, but. You know, <laughs> as I've, I've said before, you know, in, in Fife in the 1960s, you were more likely to meet a unicorn than an out lesbian. Lots of mermaids, no lesbians. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> so then Juliet Chalk then? Yeah, Juliet is, is a filmmaker and a journalist uh, writing on right across the spectrum of literature, film, art, music, politics, gender, sexuality and football. Um, I have to say, let's get a word in here for football. Football's amazing. Yay. Football's wonderful. Football's affirming for people. Um, <laughs> um, but her, her memoir, uh, Trans, a memoir, combines it's, it's get critiques of trans theory, it's literature and film, but there's also the very personal story of, of her transition, which she did in, I think, an extraordinary act of bravery. She wrote a series of columns for the Guardian newspaper about the whole process of her transition. And I think to put yourself out there like that is an amazing thing to do. 
uh, and there's there's real clarity and candor in in the way that that she writes, and it's she's she started off I suppose in in a narrative that didn't fit her as a narrator, and she's moved into a continuing story that that's kind of tailored to suit who she really is. Uh, I think too often the the idea of transitioning is seen as as black and white, but mm-hmm. Julia explores the grey areas between the absolutes. And, and reveals the possibilities, I think, that where we all might fit on. I think what we'd all agree is a continuum of gender and sexuality. Too often people try to, to make this a binary, uh, and, and a, if you're here, you can't be here, you can't have a wee bit of either. But I think what, what I also loved about it um, as a memoir is it's, it's a vivid portrait of searching for queer in the 90s and the 2000s. And I have to say, <laughs> you know, having lived in Manchester in the 1990s, I recognise so much about uh, about that environment and that world. Um, but it's more than one person's journey. It's, it's an exploration of attitudes and of social change. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting section about on the politics of life writing that deals with questions like who gets to speak and what they're allowed to say how to avoid cliches when they sometimes apply to your own life, and, and who are you writing for? And I think to, to sort of explore those ideas sort of, as it were, in, in, in the middle of what you're actually doing, it's fascinating to, to sort of come upon that section and, and, and pause for thought. Well, I actually went back and read some of her columns from when she was writing about her transition for The Guardian. Um, and this was in 2010 to 2012, which feels like such a long time ago really in terms of the the conversation um about transgender people and and transitioning it it felt reading back it feels so brave and then with trans and memoir you get a better sense because that came out in 2015 and it did incorporate some of the content from those columns but you kind of get the sense that she's revisiting her life up till then in the in the sort of parameters of what her new body offers her, and it's kind of fascinating, like you said, to look, think about like her time in Manchester in the nineties, and you know how it's quite a laddish place, mm. um, and to be revisiting those memories as a woman, um, it, it's it's a fascinating perspective to have experiences with both. And I think this is a a really important book uh, for right now, when there is so much hostility and so much transphobia in the conversation around the issues, I think what we all need to take a step back and a deep breath and take the hate out of the discussion. Mm. That hate takes us nowhere. The only time you actually move forward is when people listen to each other and acknowledge that other people have a valid point of view. It may not be your point of view. You may deeply deeply oppose what they're saying and, and, and the views they're expressing, but to recognise they have a right to those opinions. There's a lot of us out here who need to take a very deep breath right now um, and so that, so that we can move forward in a way that's respectful and, and honourable and allows people to be themselves. Yeah, that's my wee bit of rant for the morning. <laughs> it actually feeds into a question I was going to ask you because uh, at the start, you know, we were, we were talking about establishing that template and making a space for people that will come after you. And you, you do get the sense that people like Juno and Juliet are making a space that we're going to see a lot more writing from transgender writers 
And I'm kind of excited for the idea maybe that it won't necessarily be memoir, that I think at the moment, and it's such a brave thing that these writers are documenting their own lives and they're putting their own lives up for scrutiny. But the idea that they perhaps don't have to do that in the future is a really exciting prospect, I think. Yeah, I think it's... um. There's always the, there's always a, as it were the the forefront the phalanx out there ahead who, who are brave enough to push open the doors for the rest of us to follow, and some people say you know the battle's won the war's over but you look at the news headlines and social media on any given day and you know that's really not true. Uh, LGBT people are still bullied at school. They're still bullied in the workplace. They're still bullied in in their social lives. We're still the targets of hate crime in so many places around the world. Our very identity, just who we are, criminalises us and condemns us. And we have to keep moving forward. And these these are the books that are not just for LGBT readers. These are books for everybody. Uh, it's, it's not just niche anymore. It's not just a ghetto writing. This is just part of the landscape that everybody should be reading, that everybody is reading. Uh, writers like Ali Smith, like Jeanette Winterson, like Alan Hollinghurst, uh, writers for screen like Russell T. Davis are opening the horizons. And you can't dismiss those writers as being irrelevant uh, at all. Uh, you know, W.H. Auden claimed that poetry makes nothing happen, and I happen to think he was a bit wrong about that. I think words change the world, reader by reader. And that's why we need to read these books and we need to put them in hands of other people who are readers who may not have come across these writers. We need to get these words out there for everybody. Thanks for listening and huge thanks to Val and Sean for their time. If you've got questions or you want to get in touch, you can follow Simon at Tarnimus on Twitter and I am at Steph X McKenna. If you want to follow the National Centre for Writing or have any questions about what we do or the International Literature Showcase, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. Search for us on Facebook or go to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk where you can also sign up to our newsletter so that you're always in the loop about our writer opportunities. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find it. Thanks again for listening, keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode.